The sermon text this morning is taken from Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 32. Now the company of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made to each, as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was surnamed by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field which belonged to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds, and brought only a part, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Hark! The feet of those that have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Consider two effects now of believing in Jesus. One effect is a tightening of the relationship of our heart to other people. And the other is the loosening of the relationship of our heart to things and money. Let me show you this right in the very first verse of our text, verse 32. Now the company of those who believe. Now just stop right there and consider that word believe for a moment. Those who believe. What is it to believe in Jesus? It's to trust him as Lord and Savior. Or the the way I love to describe it is it's to be satisfied with all that God is for you in Christ. That's my favorite definition of saving faith. Saving faith in Jesus Christ is to rest satisfied in all that God is for you in Christ. Now, here are the two effects that come from that experience of satisfaction. Now, the company of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So the first effect is a tightening, a unifying of our heart with other people, especially other believers. When you put 
faith in Christ and a bond of faith is created with him, a bond of love is also created with his people. Now here's the second effect. Now the company of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had everything in common. In other words, a second effect of being satisfied with all that God is for you in Christ is that there is a loosening of the attachment that you have with things and with money. Those two effects flow directly from being attached to Jesus with a sense of rest and faith and trust and satisfaction in all that God is for us in Him. We are tightened in our love for people and loosened from our love for things. Now, this is a burden that Luke has He wants us to be free from things. I just wish all of you could be with us on our Wednesday night studies because we've been having a great time talking about possessions in the Gospel of Luke and we'll finish it this Wednesday night. But we have seen that running right through Luke's Gospel and on into the Acts of the Apostles, almost at the top of his agenda is get my people free from possessions. Get them free from money. Get them free for people. Transform the hearts of my people so they don't love things but love people. That's the burden of Luke. This is a snapshot here in Acts of what happens in a community when people's hearts are being revolutionized by trusting Jesus. Hearts that are just turned upside down in what they value, in what they love. And it's no longer things, it's people. Jesus said, Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And then the next phrase is, Sell your possessions and give alms. Now, that's what's happening right here, isn't it? Selling their fields, selling their houses, bringing the money that it might be distributed to those who have greater need in the church. What we are seeing played out here in Acts chapter 4 is a living illustration of people who trust Luke 12.32 and obey Luke 12.33. They hear the promise, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Don't be afraid. You're going to get the whole kingdom. Don't be afraid, little helpless sheep. Sell your possessions and give alms. Love people, not money. That's what's being played out here. And obedience to the word of Jesus in Luke 12, 32. And it's a beautiful picture. Now, freedom from money for people is right at the heart of Luke's concern. I stress the word freedom. Freedom 
freedom. It's in freedom that we are to act in relation to money. Freedom that we are to act in relation to people. It is not under constraint with our arm behind our back, with community expectations all over us, trying to make ourselves look good as we tithe or do something else. That's not the spirit of Christianity. Now, I want you to see this right here in our text. The spirit of absence from constraint and living presence of freedom. I see it, for example, in Acts 5, verse 4. Ananias has sold a field. He has taken all the money. He has looked at it. He can't give it all up. He takes part of it, lays it at the feet of the apostles, and he gives the impression that's all of it. Now, Peter, by the Holy Spirit, discerns what's going on. And he thinks, what in the world? What would prompt a, a man... In the church to do this. He's acting as though. He's under some kind of constraint. And pressure. And that community expectations are such that. He better live up to them at least outwardly. Even if he can't inwardly. What in the world has got Ananias? Because for Peter. That's not what's going on. He's not under constraint. Now let me show you this in the verse. Verse 4. He says to him. Ananias, while your property remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Now, what's the point of asking that question? You're acting like we took this from you. You're acting like you had to do this, like you had to come up with all this money. And so you've got to keep a good front up here and make it look like you brought it all in because you had to. You didn't have to. It was your field. You don't have to sell it. And then he stresses it even further in the second half of the verse. And after your property was sold, was it not at your disposal? Even when you had all that money in your hands, you didn't have to bring it. There are no rules in this church that say you have to sell your field and bring the money into this church. There's no constraints. There are no community pressures here that you have to live up to. What's the deal? If it isn't in your heart to bring it, don't bring it. Now, that's what I want to say to you about the offering in this church every Sunday morning. If it isn't in your heart to bring it, don't bring it. You know what this text says? It's suicide to bring it. You might drop dead in the pew. To put money in the offering plate that you don't want to put in the offering plate is hypocrisy. And so don't bring it for your own good. Now, to make this real, namely that Christianity is not a matter of external constraints and pressures and living up to appearances but is a matter of internal freedom, not a matter of force and law, but um, freedom and love. To make that crystal clear, Luke gives us two living examples of real people, Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. Now, let's look at them one at a time. Let's look at this wonderful man, Barnabas, for just a minute. Acts 4.36, Joseph who was surnamed by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement because of his amazing reputation. 
a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field which belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet for distribution to the poor. Now, that's all it says about Barnabas. That's the end of the story. <laughs> but it's not the end of the story as you keep on reading the book. And we'll keep on working in Acts until God says, switch to something else. But if you keep on reading the book of Acts, you will find this man next, for example, in chapter 9, being the first and probably the only advocate of this new convert, Paul, that everybody's scared of and won't touch him with a 10-foot pole. Barnabas comes in alongside and gets him accepted in the church in Jerusalem. Then you see him again in chapter uh, 11, where he's the uh, shepherd sent up to these Gentile converts that Jews don't associate with. And so, Barnabas, you do it. You're good with strangers. You go up there and be the pastor in Antioch. And third... Uh, he's trusted then with the relief money to send from Antioch down to Jerusalem because here's a man with integrity. And then we meet him as the partner of Paul on the first missionary journey. And then we meet him standing up again for John Mark, the rascal who left on the first missionary journey. And Paul won't have him anymore. And Barnabas says, give him a break. He's a new man. And Paul says, absolutely not. And so they split and go in two directions. Can you believe that? That's the man Barnabas. He's a man lovable kind, full of integrity. His uh, integrity and his honesty and his encouragement was legendary throughout the early church. The kind of man you want to name a son after, right? It's just a great name and a great man. But where did it all begin? That's the point of these two verses. First time we meet this man, what's he doing? He's laying money down and picking people up. There's Barnabas. This field can go. I don't need this field. There's some poor people that need help. I don't need this field. I've got a place to stay. I've got a roof over my head. i got food. I can lay it down. That's where it all started. A freedom from money and a love for people. But now, Ananias and Sapphira aren't like that. They're exactly the opposite, in fact. They are not satisfied with what God is for them in Christ. There is a kind of seething need inside that God hasn't met. There's a covetousness here and a greed that's playing itself out in an awful way. Now, they drop dead, not because all hypocrites are punished that way in the church, We know from chapter 8 that Simon the magician who had done something just as grievous is only rebuked. Paul says in colloquial language, to hell with you and your money. If you think you can buy the Holy Spirit with money. You better pray for mercy because you're in the gall of bitterness, man. And he falls down and he prays for mercy. Well, that isn't what happened here. They dropped dead. Now, why? Why did Ananias and Sapphira receive this punishment early on in the book of Acts? The only answer I know to give is that God wanted to give a very sober, stunning warning to the church to walk in the fear of hypocrisy. He wants to teach us that hypocrisy is a fearful thing. 
religious gamesmanship. Spiritual fakery is an abomination to God. He hates it. And here's the living illustration. They both drop dead. Now look for this in verse 5 of chapter 5. Great fear came upon all who heard it. And then again in verse 11, when Sapphira died, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The fact that Luke repeats that after each death shows that's the lesson. That's the lesson he wants to get across. Namely, it's a fearful thing to lie to the Holy Spirit. It's a fearful thing to be a hypocrite. It's a fearful thing to discredit God. It's a fearful thing to be covetous. It's a fearful thing to walk around in the church giving good impressions when inside you're carrying on a tryst with the world. That's the point. Now, to show you that this is no isolated incident of fear, let me just read the programmatic verse about fear in Chapter 9, verse 31, which says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. Peace. And was built up. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it was multiplied. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? I think it means that there was a healthy fear of hypocrisy and duplicity and a life of peace with sin. It was a fear of falling into hypocrisy and having what happened to Ananias and Sapphira happen to us. And then the Holy Spirit ministered to people who humbled themselves under that kind of mighty hand and gave them an authenticity and reality so that in all peace and edification they could be who they were. No sham, no fakery in the church. We need to ask, what's wrong with Ananias and Sapphira? What's wrong here? What happened? I see four things. First, they loved money. They loved money. Because when they sold the, the field, they got all that money and they looked at it. They evidently felt a tug to give it all, but they just couldn't give it all. They looked at all the things they could buy with that money, all the security that it would bring and all the fun it would bring and the comforts it would bring, and they just couldn't give it up. That's problem number one. They love money too much. Second thing that went wrong is that they wanted to look more generous than they were. They wanted to look more generous than they really were. And so they came and laid part of it before the apostles, and they lied to the Holy Spirit and said, that's, that's all of it. Now, why'd they do that? Only answer I can think of is that they wanted the praise of men. They wanted to be thought well of. So first, they loved money, and second, they loved approval. 
They loved religious strokes. They loved looking spiritual. They loved uh, being thought of like Barnabas. He's got a good reputation. They even gave him a special name. Let's at least say we gave it all. And maybe we will be given special names. If you love money, and if you love the praise of men, you know what's going to go next? Truth. And so the third thing they did was lie. They lied. Now mark this well. This is true right across the board in your life. Where the love of truth rises to the pinnacle of your values, the love of money and the love of approval diminishes. And the reverse is true. Where the love of money and the love of people's approval rises, the love of truth dissolves into deception and fraud because you want to manipulate truth in order to keep money and keep praise. Truth is neither here nor there. What matters is that people think well of you and that you have a lot of things. And so if you have these two loves in your life, truth, eh, no big deal. You put down this much on my income tax because they don't know about honorariums anyway, right? I do funeral, I do wedding, get $50 here and there. Uncle Sam never know that. Now, why would anybody ever do that? Why would a pastor ever do that? Can you imagine such a thing? Love of money, love of pleasure, and a carelessness about the truth doesn't matter anymore. If you can pull the wool over somebody's eyes, you've got it, right? And truth is of no significance because love of money and love of praise are the governing powers. And the fourth thing that happened in their life was that they discredited the Holy Spirit. They discredited the Holy Spirit. Now, how did they do that? How is the behavior that they have here a reproach to the Lord and a discrediting of the Spirit? I can think of three possible ways. I'm not sure which one was working in the life and mind of, of Ananias and Sapphira. So let me just lay out all three and commend them for your consideration because whether or not any of these was at work in Ananias and Sapphira's mind, they are at work today in the church. Number one, you can discredit the Holy Spirit by coming up to apostles or circulating in the church or walking up into this sanctuary utterly oblivious that God the Holy Spirit is in this place. Never even thinking of that reality as you walk into this room. Maybe Ananias and Sapphira were just oblivious of the reality of the Holy Spirit. Maybe they were so thoroughly sham people that they didn't even think that the Holy Spirit was in the church and in the life of Peter as they spoke. And so maybe it is that some of you would walk into a room like this and it doesn't even enter into your mind that when I speak, God speaks. When my word conforms to this book, God is speaking. God is as close to you as the pew on which you sit. God is as real 
as the beat of your heart. And if he just blinked, that heart would stop. That's how real he is. But there are many people who come into this room and they're not thinking about God at all. They just don't think about God. And maybe that's what was wrong with Ananias. And that's a great discredit to the Holy Spirit. When you walk into the presence of the Holy Spirit and you're oblivious to Him, pay no attention to Him, do nothing in your mind and your heart to relate to Him, He is dishonored. But maybe that wasn't it. Maybe it was more like this. Maybe they did have an awareness of the Holy Spirit. They did believe He was active in the church of the first century. But it just didn't get home to them that he knows every thought in their mind. Every thought. And maybe there's some of you who come to church and you sit there right now and you don't really reckon with the fact that coming over this loudspeaker is every single thought in your mind as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned. He hears every one of them. And on a big screen up here are all the images in your mind right, right now. It's just that the Holy Spirit's the only one that can see them right now. He sees every imagination in your mind. He sees every thought in your mind. He sees every feeling that rises in your heart. Right now, what you're thinking about my preaching, he reads it and records it. He knows everything that you think right now. He is that close, that intimate, that involved in your mind. Maybe they just didn't even think of that. So that when they lied, well, they, it just didn't occur to them. God is hearing this lie. This is not a lie to just apostles. God is being lied to. God looks on when you lie. Every lie is a lie in the presence of the God of truth. What an awesome thing to neglect. What a truth to ignore. What a disrespect to the Holy Spirit. But maybe that wasn't it either. Maybe they did have an awareness of the Holy Spirit. Maybe they were aware that what they were saying was being listened to by the Holy Spirit when they lied. And maybe the problem was, thirdly, that they just had a view of grace that says there's no punishment. There's no punishment. Because God is a God of grace and uh, he tolerates everything. He's lenient. He forgives everything. That's the meaning of grace. And they found out different. Now, I don't know whether that was it either, but that comes into this church, I'm sure. People that walk in and they aren't any more trembling about their sin in the presence of God than anybody. Because there's a presumption upon the grace of God that grace is simply leniency. It's simply permissiveness to keep on loving things. When in fact, you know what grace is? It is a power to start loving people and stop loving things. Grace is Power. You remember the words of Paul? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. 
but I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God which is with me. Can you define grace on the basis of that text? 1 Corinthians 15.10 Grace is the power to stop loving things and start loving people. And therefore, if you come into a sanctuary planning to carry on a love affair with things by virtue of the permissiveness of grace, you know what Hebrews 10.29 says you do? You outrage the spirit of grace. That's the phrase. Outrage the spirit of grace by treating grace as permissiveness to live comfortably with sin. When in fact it's power to defeat sin in your life. That's the way you heap scorn upon the Holy Spirit. You either ignore him and don't even know he's there, or you treat him as one who is so theoretical and mechanical, he doesn't really, as a person, read your mind and deal with you as a person, or he's so permissive that it absolutely makes no difference how you live. He will let it go and not call you to account. I'm sure that's the warning that Luke wants you to hear this morning because of his comment about fear. He wants us at Bethlehem to walk in the fear of the Lord, which simply means let us be afraid of hypocrisy. Let us be afraid of bringing reproach upon the Lord by having an ongoing love affair with money and things. Let us be afraid of discrediting grace by treating it as a permit to live in love with the world when in fact it is a power to fall out of love with the world and into love with people. But I don't want to end with Ananias and Sapphira. I want to end with Barnabas. So let's close by asking, how was he different? How was this great man Barnabas different from Ananias and Sapphira? He was different, first of all, because he didn't love money. When he sold his field and he had all that money in his hands, he did not dream about all the, the fun things he could do with that money. And buying another land or another house or another car or another this or another that. He dreamed, he dreamed about two things. He dreamed about how many poor people were going to be blessed and how much honor was going to be brought to the name of the Lord Jesus who freed him and blessed them. I tell you, he was a Christian hedonist. Make no mistake. He knew where he got his kicks. And he got his kicks from generosity. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20.35. Same book, same author. There's one point running through this book. Get yourself free from money. And attached to people. And the second thing that made him different was that he didn't care about the praise of men. He didn't need any strokes to say, oh, you're nice and spiritual, Barmas. He could let the chips fall where they were. You know why? Because faith for him was being satisfied 
with all that God was for him in Christ, if the king of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, smiles upon you, what need of the smile of another? I mean, who needs Peter's approval if you have God's? He didn't need anybody's approval. And since he didn't love things and he didn't love money, you know what he was? A man of legendary integrity. Legendary love and trustworthiness and lovableness. Bar Nabas, son of encouragement. Living for others, 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 because he didn't give a rip about money. He didn't give a rip about the praise of men. He cared for people because God had loved him and he lived in love. And finally, he was different because he didn't bring any discredit upon the Holy Spirit because he knew that the Holy Spirit was present and real in the church. In this room, the Holy Spirit is alive and real. He knew that the Holy Spirit was a person that read every thought that he had. And he knew that grace, the gift of grace, is not a permit to go on living in love with money. Grace is a power to break the bond of love with money and to create a bond. Of love with people. What a man. Let's be like Barnabas. Not like Ananias and Sapphira. Let's pray. We have a lot of Barnabases at Bethlehem. And many of them are on the prayer teams. Who love to pray with you. And and be sons and daughters of encouragement. To you with their prayers and they'll be standing here in a, in a few teams at the end and I just urge you not to leave with any burden that you need help with physical emotional maybe something has been said that just you've got to deal with with somebody they'd love to just take a few minutes and pray with you here at the front so on your way out stop and pray father I can say what I see in the text, but only you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can free people from the love of money. Only you can give us hearts that love people. And so I pray now that the miracle of transformation, the tightening of our relation to people and the loosening, of our relation to things would happen in the hearts of this people. In Jesus' name, amen.